Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I'm your host, James DePietro. This is a show that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I am proud to welcome Patrice Marshall McKenzie, an education advocate and candidate for the Pasadena Unified School District Board for District 5. A Pasadena native, she proudly graduated from PUSD schools, which she credits as critical to her success. After John Muir High School, Patrice went to UC Berkeley and would earn her master's in public administration from Baruch College in New York. She has built a career focused on advocacy and public service. Since 2015, Patrice has worked for Los Angeles Unified School District Board member, Dr. George McKenna, and currently serves as his deputy chief of staff. Believing that public education is a community benefit, she has championed collaboration and policies that not only improve schools, but also improve operations, like how contracts are awarded. While she works for LAUSD, Patrice has been incredibly involved with education here at home. In 2020, she co-chaired the Yes on Measure O campaign, which raised $516 million in bonds to upgrade schools by improving access to technology, creating science labs, increasing water and energy conservation infrastructure, and making spaces that support the arts and STEM. So without further delay, my conversation with Patrice Marshall McKenzie. Patrice, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, to get us started, can you share a little bit about your background? As I know, you're from Pasadena, attended local schools, and graduated from John Muir High School. Yes, Pasadena is home. I was raised here from about the age of three months old. My parents are actually from here, so my mom and bonus dad both went to Pasadena schools as well. My mom went to Franklin, Elliott, and John Muir, and my bonus dad went to Edison, Elliot, and John Muir. So we've got deep roots here in the community. My husband and I were very purposeful in making our home here. We are not parents, but we are godparents to many and mentors to even more. So there are many, many organizations that we support and serve here. And we're grateful to be integral parts of this community. You've mentioned that your grandmother, Hazel, has been an inspirational force in your life. She ran a daycare in your house for decades and was a rock and leader in your community. Who were some of your early mentors that were especially important that could be academic, professional, et cetera, and why? So I am proud to say that my grandma Hazel actually just celebrated her 90th birthday a couple of weeks ago. So she is awesome. She's really, really cool. And other mentors, I would say my kindergarten teacher, Miss Rosemary Tolliver was an amazing person. I have very vivid memories of school because of her. And I'm also fortunate to serve in Alpha Kappa Alpha with her today. So we still have an ongoing and enduring relationship. Many, many teachers, Mr. Del Yarbrough, the principal at Elliott when I was there, he has and his wife are strong community leaders and have certainly been mentors and advocates and champions for me over the years. And I'm grateful for them. And then professionally, have had a number of leaders who saw something in me before I saw it in myself, especially in terms of pursuing elected office, have to say thank you to the Honorable Gwen Moore. She passed away two years ago, but she certainly was the first person to say that you certainly will be an elected leader one day. And I didn't believe her. I didn't see it, but she says, just just keep 
waiting. It'll, it will come and you'll see it. But many, many people have been gracious with their time, their expertise and their knowledge. And I do all that I can to sort of pay that forward and to try and identify and lift up other leaders too. Well, after graduating high school, you attend UC Berkeley and majored in history with a minor in education. What did you want to do as a career when you were in college? I thought I was going to be an attorney at some point. Thought lightly about being a school teacher, but realized that it wasn't kind of fully my passion and the best way for me to sort of serve in that way. And ended up not doing either of those things. Started my career in nonprofit management, working for the Court Appointed Services Association for Students in Foster Care, and was really exposed to the child welfare system for the first time in that way. And from then until now, I have always had a heart for advocacy in child welfare, so I've kind of kept that in my background. I served in corporate HR for some years, was a great experience in terms of learning people, managing people, relationship building, and also kind of bringing folks together to gain consistency and also, you know, training and sort of the basic things that you do as an HR person. I got to see people in a variety of ways over the life cycle of their career. So as new employees, when they received promotions, when their families expanded, when they grew their families and had you know, even when people unfortunately, you know, died as employees, you then are as a part of their family structure in terms of how they're sort of putting their next steps together. So in terms of being able to kind of see and experience people, it was a valuable experience. From there, I transitioned into special event management. I always had done special events, just even as a kid and even throughout my other professions like organizing company retreats and staff retreats and other kinds of activities always sort of fell to me because I was kind of interested in it and fairly good at it. So pursued it as a profession at one point, had a chance to sort of learn arena management and kind of see events from the kind of social event side, the professional event side, and gained valuable skills there. And that transitioned me into public service, believe it or not. And my first role was working for a political action committee, doing operations, and then being able to begin some of the training, event management, and voter contact organization and coordination, and then went on to become a staffer for then speaker Karen Bass. And then from there, I have been serving in public service since then and went to graduate school, got my master's degree in public administration, and then got hired at LAUSD working for board member George McKenna. So I'm doing school board in my day job, managing a staff of five and doing all kind of the policy things that are required to be effective in terms of board governance in my professional life. And I actually want to be able to do it in my volunteer life too, if you can believe that. While at Berkeley, you joined the famous Alpha Kappa Alpha, like you just mentioned, and its members include Kamala Harris, and locally, uh, I always knew of Yvonne Burke because she was on the LA County Board of Supervisors for a number of years. What's it like being part of such a storied sorority like that? Alpha Kappa Alpha has been sort of a pivotal organization in my life simply because to be affiliated with women who are civic-minded, community-minded, and looking to be able to create change in their communities was what was a natural attraction for me 
but being able to then learn more about the history of its founders and that these were women who were 16, 17, 18 years old in the early 1900s where there were not very many women in college, let alone Black women in college. And for them to have the vision to see the need to create an organization and a structure to support the educational advancement of women and knowing that that was going to be pivotal in terms of accelerating community growth and accelerating advancement for Black, that is what has resonated with me. And that really sort of has been the foundational grounding for my community work, why I serve, and why it is that I'm looking to build future leaders. I have learned so much because in Alpha Kappa Alpha, you are serving with women who are in various stages of their life. They could be undergraduate students in alumni chapters. You can be from just immediately finishing college to being well into your seasoned years. So you become instantly a leader among peers and everyone is a leader in their chosen profession, in their life and their area of influence. So you come together and you learn how to lead from other leaders. And you also learn when you step forward and when you step back. And it's been a masterclass in intergenerational management, kind of personality management, people management, and also just sort of collaboration in a number of ways that have been valuable lessons and have really been integral in helping me professionally and personally. You talked about a little bit about your career, and I think you had a lot of diverse experiences and worked for a lot of different people. You mentioned you worked for then California State Assemblywoman Karen Bass, who's now running for mayor of Los Angeles, and you worked for the AARP and the National Urban Fellows. So what interested you about policymaking? I think it was my time working for Speaker Bass that in serving constituents, you knew sort of what the resources were that were available to help people. And sometimes you would encounter situations where there'd be a gap between sort of the available resources and what the solution was this person actually needed to be able to help them. And that sort of like kind of pain point of figuring out, I know what I have right now is not enough, but how do I get them to what they need? And I think being able to sort of think about the changes in policy that existed that would help close those gaps is what sort of drew me into policymaking and wanting to be a part of that landscape. I interned for LA County for three years while I was in high school. So I interned over the summers and that's how I knew about uh, Supervisor Burke. And uh, one summer I was assigned a desk where I essentially answered constituent phone calls. And by far, I look back on that experience. And even though I did it for a couple of months when I was in high school or slash college, I think it's had a tremendous impact on how I view public officials, but also the role of government. And, you know, I'm 42 now. I did that when I was probably 18 or 19. But I think about that time every day. And, and when my day ended, how good I felt because I was able to help a constituent. And I'm sure you kind of can relate to that. And it probably emboldened your, your work and wanting to do more, having had that ex a very similar experience. How has your view of public service evolved over the years? To your point about actually being involved and talking to people and hearing what their needs are and being able to sometimes provide a simple solution, sometimes help them get to a more complex solution, sometimes not always being able to help and confronting that reality. It makes you really focus in on the core function of government. And that is to serve the people that it represents at its 
basic function, when you boil it down, government is supposed to serve people. And everyone who works in government is an elected leader in government, an appointed leader in government. You do so to serve people. I believe that is why I serve. I believe that's what I want to do as a school board member and why I want to be able to see the role of government really live up to its core function of being able to offer the highest quality of service to people. One of my most memorable constituent service calls is a gentleman received a bill from the hospital for upwards of a half a million dollars. And he is absolutely devastated, one, because he can't pay this bill. Two, he got the bill because his wife died. So he goes to the hospital, takes his wife, they care for her, but she dies. And he gets a bill for a half million dollars weeks later. So he's grieving. Now he's like crippled with anxiety about potentially being bankrupt. And so when he shares the bill with me and I'm looking over it, I see what looks to be a charge of like $300,000 for something that I'm like, NACL. I'm like, is this high school chemistry comes back? Sodium chloride. I'm like, is this saline solution? So I called the hospital, asked me to their billing department. Turns out it's an error in coding and they were charging him $300,000 for saline solution. So we got the bill corrected. It brought the total cost down to something that was tremendously more manageable. His insurance then readjusted what their portion was, and he ended up having a very minimal kind of maybe a $1,000 out-of-pocket cost to pay, whereas he was on the verge of, had he not made that call to our office, looking at trying to figure out how to bury his wife and then pay a half-million-dollar hospital, but that was an error, a very human error, but could have been one that could have been catastrophic for this gentleman. So being able to have that kind of small impact, which was a huge impact on someone's life, it's what keeps you moving forward, what keeps you wanting to continue to keep getting up every day, answering the phone, and being able to try to help someone have a better quality of life. Well, that's a powerful story. Thank you very much for sharing that. In 2015, you joined the staff of LAUSD as chief, deputy chief of staff for Dr. George McKenna, who is a legend in the education world. I was doing research on him before our conversation. And he basically is known for turning around George Washington Preparatory High School as the principal. Dr. McKenna has said that he wanted to serve his community and education was his way of doing that. Of all the policy fields you could have gone into, why did you choose education? I've always had a kind of peripheral interest in education, having studied it and minored in it in undergrad. I knew that it was something that had the power to change lives. And I knew how important classroom teachers were. But I knew that there had to be other ways that people could be impactful in education besides being in the classroom. And once I realized that there was this whole world of education policy out there, I always followed it peripherally. And then once I found my place in it, it really is where I've been able to find my stride and really been able to thrive. So I know that public schools and education is sort of one of the greatest institutions that one helps to undergird our democracy and two is the vehicle for kind of economic and social mobility for many, many people. It is our duty to uphold, protect, and preserve this entity and make sure that we're providing an opportunity for students to be able to learn and to find their place in the world and to become leaders in their chosen way. In your more than seven years working for LUSD, what issues or policies have you championed that you are especially proud of? I think the one that I'm most proud of is not necessarily directly school-based, 
but it is very much in line with my community work. And we have been very much involved in helping small businesses be able to work with the district. The district as sort of an economic engine does probably two, two and a half billion dollars in spend every year through its procurement functions, maintenance operations, school construction, school remodeling, those kinds of uh, expenditures. And that's a lot of money that could go into a local economy. And we have figured out through constituents calling to say, hey, I own a painting business. How can I do work to paint the schools in my community? How can I get an opportunity to do that kind of a thing? And the way our contracting structure is set up isn't always the most small business friendly, the most community friendly. And it's not, and it's also weighted in a way that says you have to have done work on a school to do work with a school. But how do you get that experience? How do you get your foot in the door if you can't meet that initial barrier? So we've been working with our facilities division, our small business division, community relations to figure and procurement to figure out how do we break those barriers down? Because there are folks who want to do work, want to serve their local community. And how do we get people to hire folks who live in our communities that will serve our students? I think it's a pathway for economic empowerment. It's a pathway for being able to get folks to invest in uplifting and bettering their communities. And it's also an economic driver too. So really, really proud of that work. We're increasing the number of small businesses that are doing work with us. We've unbundled some of the contracts so that they're in smaller pieces that are easier so that the work doesn't all just fall with kind of larger, more established firms. And we're seeing real success there. I love that. In October 2020, the Pasadena City Council created the Community Police Oversight Commission, and you applied to be a commissioner, but ultimately other candidates were chosen. Why did you want to serve Pasadena on the PCOC? So actually, I fully believe in the work of the Oversight Commission, and I actually was looking for other people to serve in that role. I knew it was going to be something that required a tremendous amount of time, and I may not have had enough time to really delve into it. And everyone that I went to said, hey, you should apply for that. They all said to me, no, it's you. You apply. And wanting to make sure that we had community voice represented in that process, I applied. And I had, it was a pretty intense application process, an interview process. I think that the council did a very hard job in sort of finding a way to select people to represent community. I think that I went into the process knowing that I wanted to be a voice for community. And I led with my desire to serve community in terms of what I wanted to do in that role, what I wanted to represent and what I stood for. So I feel good about how I showed up. I feel good about my representation. And I I have met people who said, I saw you, I heard you, and thank you for speaking for us. So while I wasn't ultimately selected, I'm still connected to the people who are serving on the community that are representing community organizations, we're still continuing to track that work, continuing to make sure that community voice is included in that process. And I am a firm believer that you can still lead without having to have the title. So how do you think the process is going thus far? I think it's been hard. They have had some setbacks in terms of losing their first independent auditor, having to then hire someone else to come into that role. There's been a couple of commissioners who have resigned. So when you have that sort of kind of turnover in sort of the makeup of the body, you are stuck in that sort of group dynamic of forming and you don't get a chance to sort of really be effective because you're trying to like solidify the dynamic. 
figure out people's roles, figure out sort of where people are and how to work together. And the longer that process is delayed, it really sets you back before you can really become effective in terms of getting into the work. But there is a new independent auditor on the staff. The commissioners have since been replaced and they feel as though they have momentum now in their backs to sort of begin to really get into the work and move forward. And it's also, they're standing up a brand new entity. So you have to kind of deal with that startup element too that exists of there are things that are aren't not yet in place. So they have to kind of figure out what they have, what they need, and sort of how to fill those gaps in, but also do the work in the process too. So kudos to the commission for taking those steps and really being able to serve and be a voice for people. Well, thank you for staying involved still. We'll see where this goes. But like you said, there's been a lot of turnover, but I'm hoping that once it gets going fully, that'll be a really positive force in Pasadena. Kind of transitioning to your run for PUSD board. You are a proud product of PUSD schools. And I was thinking about, you went to John Muir and you're actually the fifth guest that I've had on that's gone to Muir. So by far more people have gone to Muir than anyone else on this podcast. It shows you how ingrained and important the school is to, to the city. How critical was PUSD to your success? It was everything. I met my first friends my earliest mentors, community leaders that I was inspired by, community leaders who have invested in me, shaped me. I have had life-changing experiences through PUSD. My first volunteer opportunity came in seventh grade, being a junior docent at the Pasadena History Museum. So fortunate in eighth grade to be a junior docent at the Gamble House. So like my early curly like volunteer experiences came out of my PUSD experience in eighth grade. At Elliott, the Challengers Club that I was encouraged to be a member of, we went to Edwards Air Force Base to watch a space shuttle land. Now, the viewing platform for the public is sort of, like, it's a huge runway kind of right in front of where the viewing platform is. And as a kid, you think that the shuttle's going to come right to you. And when it actually lands, it lands way back. Like, it looked like it was this big when we actually saw it, but we did actually see it land. And it was a little bit anticlimactic for having been 12, 13 year olds. It's hot. You're out in the sun. We had to wait for about two hours before the shuttle actually landed. But in hindsight, as an adult and in my kind of more mature mind, thinking about the experience, it is really a a once in a lifetime opportunity that PUSD provided me. Well, this summer you announced that you would run for the District 5 seat of the PUSD board. I'm a resident of District 5, so I was excited that you announced that you're going to be running. Why did you decide to run now? I decided to run now because we need to be looking to invest in our students' future. We need to elevate student achievement. We have experienced kind of a tectonic shift in education with the abrupt shift to virtual learning that we had during COVID-19. We're still very much in COVID. And how are we figuring out what is working for us in terms of how we serve students and figuring out where we're still have gaps. And I feel as though I have a place in being able to help bridge some of those conversations, being able to bring some additional ideas, and also being able to be a convener of people in terms of involving other agencies, other organizations, other stakeholders, and sort of broadening this conversation to not just be focused on parents, but talk to our whole community about the role that they play in public education and how they can support public schools. How do you think PUSD is doing compared to our neighboring school systems? And I think of 
La Cunada, I think of Arcadia, San Gabriel, San Marino. How do you think that PUSD is doing? I think PUSD is doing a good job in comparison to our neighboring school districts. These districts are very, very different than PUSD. PUSD has a very, very diverse student population in terms of race, ethnicity, national origin, social economic status, neurodiverse learning status, et cetera. So any sort of metric that you can think of, I think there's a student in PUSD who represents all of those entities. Our other districts that surround us are way more homogenous. So I think it's a lot different in terms of what that looks like. And they're also smaller districts too. So I think that it looks different in how you govern, how you lead, and how you manage things like power sharing, how you manage conversations of equity. How do you look at making investments? I think that there's a, the challenge that Pasadena has is that because our student population is so diverse, there are lots of competing interests in terms of like, what is the priority? And I think that we have to figure out how do we serve the students who have the greatest need and do so with fidelity and do so with integrity and do so with sort of a sense of wanting to serve the student, but also serve their family. And I think some of those barriers don't necessarily exist elsewhere. And I think that there also are other outside factors. I think other communities have figured out the nexus between school, community, partnership, and collaboration in a way that we haven't quite gotten right in Pasadena yet, but all of the tools are there for us to be able to get it right in the future. And I want to help us get it right in that way. Well, PUSD enrollment peaked in 2001 at about 23,000 students. It's about 15,000 now, and it's projected for 2023 to 2024. It'll drop another 1,000 to about 14,300 kids. Uh, this has resulted in devastating school closures, including Allendale and Burbank, which is where you went to. You know, looking back on the school closures, we lost four elementary, elementary schools in 2019 alone. Why do you think there's been such a decline in enrollment? Enrollment is declining for a couple of reasons. One, just from a pure sort of like master planning and demographics lens, birth rates are very, very flat right now. I think we could see a time when our kind of population of children then goes up a little bit more. But right now, birth rates are very flat. So that's a consideration. Housing affordability, to me, is a second consideration. Pasadena is rapidly becoming a city that is becoming almost unaffordable for working families. And by reasonable deduction, people put their schools, in, their kids in school in places where they can afford to live. And until we can figure out how to minimize this sort of like crunching housing cost, we're going to keep losing students at some point. So those are two things that really are impactful to me. And I think that we also have to be really honest about a third thing, which would be racism and classism. There's a lot of fear and anxiety about the unknown. And I think that because our communities are not necessarily as exposed to other people as we would like to believe that they are, people are still making decisions based on kind of their own insular experience, their own sort of biased view. And also there's a widely held assumption that certain schools are bad, certain schools are good, and that there is inherent quality based on artificial indicators. I'll take it a step further and say that organizations like greatschools.org are doing us absolutely no favors in terms of helping to shape public opinion about schools. There's no real transparency or integrity about the sources of their data, how they are extrapolating it, how they're interpreting it, how current it is, and what other factors are using to come up with their now rating system. 
and you hear people say in conversation, it's almost like a nomenclature now. Well, that school only has a two or a three, but we don't know what is driving that rubric. So I think that there's a combination of things. I think that we also have to look at, if we're looking to grow enrollment, we have to invest in our earliest learners. I think that the governor just made a huge financial investment in preschool programs statewide. We need to be looking to grow our preschool programs. I think giving students that foundational learning early on sets them up for greater student success later. I think parents also have the opportunity if they're having a good experience in their preschool program, they will matriculate over to elementary, middle, and high school programs at PUSD. So I think that's the pathway to being able to grow. And then in my kind of pie in the sky legislative wishes, I would love to see the state change the formula for how they fund public schools from an average daily attendance model to an enrollment model. Because even if students are absent, they still have needs that we have to serve, yet we don't get the same dollar for them on those days that they're absent. Interesting. Sorry for the long answer. <laughs> it's a great answer. No, thank you very much. If someone were to buy a house, they look at the schools and they look at rankings from uh, grade schools. Grade schools. And if you look at, if you dive down deep, it's like there could be some parent interaction that they had from 10 years ago that kind of brings the score down. So you never really know how accurate the data is. So that's a very good point. And I think that our neighborhoods are changing. I don't know what your neighborhood is like that you grew up in now, but I grew up in the Griffith Park area. And the reason why when I moved back to the area, I moved to Pasadena, not there is because there were no families there. The price of housing was so great that Middle income families can't afford to live there anymore. So did I want to raise a family where there are going to be no kids on the street? That's a real consideration for families. They're going to go to someplace they feel welcome. They're going to go to someplace where there are other families and other kids around. Because if they're not, then what kind of community is that really? So I think that's a really interesting point. In November of 2020, Pasadena voted to raise $516 million in bonds to upgrade schools improve access to technology, and to create science labs, et cetera. And you were actually involved in this effort and actually co-chaired the Yes on Measure O campaign. How did you get involved in this? And how do you think Measure O will impact our schools and make them more competitive? Well, I was invited to join the Yes on Measure O committee through Michelle Richardson Bailey, who currently serves on the school board today. And it was a great opportunity to get to know more about what PUSD parents want for their schools, what our community wants for our school system, and a way to really have real hands-on experience in terms of engaging voters and sort of getting the wider community involved in making an investment in public schools. I will say that the school district is just starting to begin to share their draft plans for Measure O, and they're getting ready to have a series of meetings at school levels. They're going to be virtual meetings starting next week where families and community members can sort of listen in and weigh in on what they think the investments should be. That information and that input is vital to the process. I think that we're at a, an inflection point now that we didn't know that was coming in 2020 about really thinking about how we invest in upgrading our school campuses. In the coming, in the recent weeks, we've had almost unprecedented sort of like long sustained days of continuous triple digit heat. That's not what we are used to experiencing. We get some days here and there, but sort of two weeks back to back of 100 degree weather, that's not what we're accustomed to here. So knowing that that's going to become more of the norm and not the exception, we have to think about how are we providing an environment on our campuses that is 
conducive to student learning, conducive to students being able to play outside, conducive to being able to have schools operate functionally. And that means making investments in updating our HVAC systems, thinking about what our campus landscaping looks like in terms of is there shade structures, green space, a tree canopy, looking at doing the cool coating for asphalt so that we can do the solar reflective coating to bring down that kind of overall sort of heat index temperature. Those kinds of things are the things we should be having discussions around with our measure O dollars at this point since we have an opportunity to make those transformations. Thinking about when you come inside of the school buildings, we have a good number of buildings that were built turn of the 20th century, early 1900s. And architecturally, they are the most beautiful campuses that you will see, beautiful school buildings, but they're old. And I think what we have learned and what school has evolved from then until now, we have the opportunity to sort of maintain the aesthetic beauty that our campuses have, but make them kind of modern and functional and practical and necessary for what our students need for today and what they will need for tomorrow. So that means we improve their lab spaces. We improve their kind of technology spaces. We improve creating maker spaces, project-based learning sort of environments. And so we create the opportunity for there to be more flexible space on campuses so that when our kind of classroom learning adapts, we have the space to be able to adapt to accommodate that. I think with that investment, we also look at growing the number of preschool and how we serve like little, little people and being able to have facilities that can accommodate what their needs are. So I think there's a chance right now for us to think and really dream about what we need and what's going to serve our students in the future. And we make those investments now and they will pay dividends later. I love your focus on preschools. Having four little kids, I have gotten a lot more uh, accustomed to kind of preschool procedures, and it's a totally different animal than regular elementary school. There's so many more regulations, so many more structures that have to be put in place. And so it's a lot more time intensive in terms of kind of design and kind of maintenance of the facilities. But it's so important because you have to get the kids learning at an early age so that they're empowered and that they have the infrastructure to succeed in in kindergarten and then elementary school. So I, I love to hear that the preschool focus. We've talked about the cost of housing. You know, you've made it a priority for teachers and staff to be actually in Pasadena, to live in Pasadena, to be part of our community. How do we do this as a school district and as a city? I think it's a couple of things. I think we have to think about full solutions. Some of it becomes, I signed on personally to endorse Measure H, the rent control measure. I think rent control is a solution that should be in a a suite of solutions that we provide in terms of addressing housing affordability. We also need to be able to build and increase the housing inventory. We have, I think, a plethora of luxury housing inventory today, probably not enough moderate to middle or lower income housing solutions. Um, We have to figure out how do we address that need. I think we also have got to figure out how do we work with other organizations and other these in government to figure out where does the investment come into supporting growing the home ownership base too? People want to be able to plant roots. They want to be able to stay in one place and sort of build out their lives. But if you are paying upwards of $2,500, $3,000 a month in rent, where does that leave a family room to save for a down payment? I think that we are... Sh- We've demonstrated that folks are able to pay a mortgage because they're paying mortgage size rents, if not more, 
but we haven't figured out how to offer them the assistance and the support to get over that down payment hurdle. So I think that looking at multiple solutions of stabilizing costs, expanding our available inventory at various price points, finding ways to keep people in the homes they're in now, finding ways to expand home ownership pathways, and also implementing rent control will give you multiple tools in your toolbox to create ways to sustain and stabilize your community. After launching this podcast in October of 2020, I knew I needed a tool to record the show that would be easy for both myself and my guests. I also wanted a tool that had great audio quality. So I'm excited that the podcasting tool I've used since the early days of the show, Zencaster, is a sponsor. Not only does Zencaster provide studio quality sound, but it also features awesome HD video recordings if you want to upload shows to YouTube or someplace else. What I love most about Zencaster is that it records separate audio and video tracks, so the editing process is much more customized. Plus, there's secured cloud backups so you never lose your interviews, Post-production is a simple click away, and a transcript is even auto-generated. It's super easy to use. There's nothing to download. My guests just click on a link and we start recording. Go to zencaster.com pricing and enter promo code thecrowncitypod to get 30% off your first three months with a pro account. You will also get a 14-day free trial. Zencaster is the modern web-based solution for the everyday and professional podcaster, and I'm proud to have them as a sponsor. Now back to the show. As someone who works for LUSD and has experience in programs and policies in Los Angeles, what lessons have you learned from LUSD you think would be helpful for the PUSD board? I think the thing that is most important is that you need to have diverse stakeholders in the room when you're having conversations and thinking about making decisions. It's not just the folks who are like the loudest, the most vocal, the most present. And sometimes you don't always get a chance to hear from people who will probably be most impacted by your decisions. And I think we have to be careful to not make the assumption that people who are not present don't care. And I think we have to find ways to expand how we talk to our community members, how we talk to families. When are we holding community events? In what fashion are we holding community events? Are they in the morning? Are they during work hours? Are they after school? Are they in the evening? Are they on weekends? How do we reach people? And if that means you've got to spend some time and invest a little effort in going door to door, being able to sort of really think outside the box about how we're talking to folks and how we're giving people an opportunity to give their input and sort of really make them feel as though they're valued and respected and a really trusted partner in policy development and decision-making processes, I think will go a long way. I also think that we have to make an investment in supporting our PUSD staff. Our teachers are bearing an incredible burden right now. We have asked them to do countless other things besides teach their lesson to students. And I think that effort is recognized, but not always fully acknowledged the way that it should be. 
So I think that if we want to continue to be a school district of choice, one of excellence, I would say, we have to make the investment in supporting our staff, making sure that our community is one that is livable, one that is accessible, one's available, and one is collaborative. I think that we may not always get it right, but I think if you make the effort to genuinely hear from your teachers, hear from staff, hear from your community members, and to sort of really gain multiple perspectives... If you're putting your students first, I think that people will understand that you're trying to do the right thing. Education in passing has a very polarized history. Following Brown v. Board of Education, La Cunada created its own school district and pulled its students. And Pasadena was forced then by the course to desegregate in 1970. I was astonished by the fact that 1970 is only 10 years before I was born. So we're talking about this happened in all of our lifetimes. And it's been claimed that Pasadena has more private schools per capita than any city of its size in the United States. And this impacts enrollment and funding. We talked about this before we started our conversation. I enrolled my kids in private school because I wanted them to have a spiritual element. It was important to me. But my wife being a product of public school, I was a product of private school. I understand the importance of public education because it's the bedrock of our communities. It creates civic participation. It contributes to workforce development, business development, business growth. How can Pasadena as a city support our public schools? I think Pasadena as a city can support our public schools by just having honest conversation about the need for education to be democratically available and accessible. I think that when we get into these discussions about what the individual need is versus what the wider community need is, we miss the mark. I know that every parent wants to do the best for their child, but sometimes we have to think about what's the greater good that we can do in our role too. I think about Nicole Hannah-Jones and the article that she wrote about finding a school for her daughter when her daughter started kindergarten. And she's a well-heeled person, her and her husband, and they could send their school kid to any school of their choice, be it public or private. And she said that they made the very deliberate decision to send their daughter to their neighborhood public school. And it's not the one that's the most resourced. It's not the magnet program. It's not the fancy specialized program, but just their neighborhood school down the street. And her rationale was... First of all, she's five and she's going to need the basic things of kind of socialization, learning what school is like, and she'll get those things in her school down the street. If she feel, if as her parents felt that if she needed anything else, we can give her those things. But what we also have the ability to do is in our advocacy for supporting our daughter, we're going to be able to advocate for students who don't have the same resources that we have as parents. So in that sense, what we do for our daughter will help the whole school and our whole community versus just our one child. So the idea that someone could make that kind of a decision about making what is arguably or what could be perceived as a small sacrifice for their own child, but for the greater good of community really spoke to me. And I think that more of us should think about how do we care about community and how do we make efforts that really show our commitment to community? And sometimes you have to sort of give a little bit to give more to others. Well, it's interesting. I was having a conversation with someone recently on the ballot is I think measure L, which is to continue to raise funds for our public libraries. And I was talking to someone, a family member about this and, you know, they were like, well, do we really need this? And my thought was it's libraries. 
it's not a new fee. It's a continuation of a, of a fee to improve our, our library systems. And I was just taken aback by the fact that this person who I know very well was questioning why we invest in libraries anymore. And I think we need to kind of change some of that mentality. Like you said, we need to kind of go beyond, this is just for me. I'm not going to use this. It's for our community. It's for the city. It's for the kids that will be in here. Hopefully, have an, a wonderful educational experience and then move on and hopefully move back to Pasadena con- to contribute again. So it's not just, you know, oh, it's it's a line item on my property tax bill or whatever it is. It's an investment in who we are, whether it's public schools, infrastructure, it's libraries. I mean, it's all part of the same commitment to our communities and it's an investment. We have to kind of change some of our mindset of people in our area that don't share some of the same values. I agree. You strongly believe that stability, service, and safety are essential for strong communities, and you've built your career around representation and engagement. Youth have generally been an unreliable political demographic. How can we best teach our children that they have agency, power, and responsibility to play active roles in our civic lives? I think we start by listening to them. I think we start by asking them what they think about things. I was a child who spent a lot of time with adults, and so I had a lot of opinions. And I'm grateful for having been given the agency from a very young age to be able to express those opinions. Didn't mean I was always going to be agreed with, but it was a practice in being able to articulate my thoughts, create an argument, and defend it. And I think that it's given me a lot of courage and a lot of opportunity to be able to be vocal about things that matter to me. I didn't get what I wanted all the time, but it was more so I'm willing to hear you even if I don't agree with you. And I think we don't talk to our kids enough. We don't give them enough space and opportunity to really be vocal about what's important to them. And I think that you can do so without making the commitment that you have to say yes to them all the time. I was talking to elementary school students yesterday and I asked them what they liked about their school and what they wanted more of. And they said three things. They wanted bigger playgrounds, more recess, obviously, And they wanted really good school food. They wanted good school lunches. They wanted better pizza with like fancy cheese and they wanted great burritos. So we had a conversation about what it would take to expand the playground. And I pointed out, do you all see the houses that surround the campus? I said, in order to make your playground bigger, we might have to ask those people to sell their homes and move away in order for us to have more space. We can't make it bigger because there are people who live there. Do you want those people to move? And I said, well, no. Well, how do they make the playground bigger? We don't need as many classrooms, but they're eight-year-olds. But the idea that we they were even engaged in that conversation about what it is that they wanted, I think is the point that we need to do more of. I feel like our students have lots of thoughts about what it is. I think we're looking, we want them to be future leaders and they're going to be stepping into various roles and professions in the future. We have to prepare them to do that. They won't just wake up when they're 20, 25, whatever age and be automatically able to lead. We have to give them opportunities now to step into that role and to be exposed to those opportunities. So I certainly want to talk to students. I want them to be civic-minded. I want them to know that their voice matters, that someone is listening to them and hearing them, even if we can't always agree with them or give them what they want. But the exercise of being able to talk to them and share with them and have them be engaged in dialogue, I think, is valuable. If you were elected to the PUSD board, what does success look like to you? If I'm elected to the PUSD 
board, success looks like greater collaboration across agencies. I think there's greater conversation and continuity of discussion around what PUSD and public schools needs that expands past what happens in the school boardroom, expands to what's happening in city council. What can the city do in terms of their youth development priorities that will align with PUSD priorities? What can the county do with their youth development? What can the state do with their policymaking around education, around education funding, around kind of community investments? How do we kind of get everyone to sort of row their boat in the same direction on youth development issues? How do we raise the conversation around the role that schools play in the lives of working families as kind of a childcare provider, essentially, on some level? And how do we really expand the conversation around really building out our infrastructure that supports working families. And I think that comes in the way of addressing housing affordability, providing before and after school care. I don't know if you know, but the school day now starts at like, what, 8.30, 8.45? And what does that look like for how do we support families? Like what services are available for people to still, you know, take their kids to school and get to work on time? Like where, where how do we close those gaps? How do we kind of wait to create that sort of continuity in the work day and the school day and sort of have safe places for children to play, safe places for children to learn, safe places for kids to exist and have activities outside of the school day. I'm sure when you were young, there were kids who were involved in like Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, etc. Scouting as an activity, other kinds of, is it recreational sport, things that sort of enhance the learning opportunity the socialization opportunity without it being super high pressure. Every kid's not going to play club sports and that's a luxury in and of itself. But how do we give students the opportunity to get to know other people, to have social interaction and have ways that are going to affirm them as people kind of feed their social emotional needs and also kind of feed their academic needs. I think all these things create experiences, they create leadership and we need to think about how we are building whole people who are going to grow into be whole humans and whole adults later. Well, I had a conversation with uh, historian Bill Deverell. I don't know who he, if you know who that is. He's in our district. He's in District 5. He lives close to me. And I asked him about kind of what improvements to the community he would make. And essentially his answer was youth sports because it, it brings so many different kids from so many different areas together. Whether you go to the public school or the private school, you're playing on a sports team together. It's exposure for, to, to different people. And I thought that's such a great answer. And something I never really thought about growing up that, you know, playing Little League for whatever two or three years I, I did, you know, I got to meet kids from all over. And I think that's so critical. So I'm glad that you mentioned that as well. Youth sports has become a cottage industry these days. <laughs> yes. It is. Yes, it has. Criminal almost the way people have found ways to exploit this industry and make money off of it. I mean, it, it's wow. I, I just am almost dumbfounded by what I see in the way of youth sports and sort of kind of how these kind of private leagues have become now the gatekeeper to college scholarships for athletics. And it's yet another barrier that is kind of creating stratification in our society in terms of accessibility. We can kind of go on a whole tangent about youth sports. As we wind down our conversation, when you think about the next five years, next 10 years and beyond, what do you envision for education in Pasadena and what role do you envision yourself playing? I envision Pasadena Unified becoming a district of excellence. I think that we look at being innovators in how we shift our practices. I think that we think about ways to develop 
practices that will allow our students to have kind of a more experiential learning opportunity versus sort of like sitting in a desk from eight to three with a book, incorporating more project-based learning, incorporating more opportunities for dual enrollment and dual enrollment to not just be for college prep students to get more credits and sort of make their transcript look better, but being able to figure out how do we support students in terms of if they're not necessarily looking or sure that they're ready for college immediately, what are the kind of career preparation pathways available? What are the skills that they can acquire and learn while they're in high school now that will sort of augment their classroom experiences, but also give them kind of tangible skills and experiences to go out into the world once they graduate? I think that we have opportunities with our community colleges to be a better partner and have more continuity. I know that John Muir has the PCC Northwest campus, but because it only exists there, it doesn't mean that other high schools or other students can't access the tremendous resources that PCC has as an institution. And how do we have more conversations with their leadership about creating more of a kind of a pre-K to let's call it 14 or 15 pathway and pipeline so that there's more connection between those two entities in terms of being the educational agencies that are available in our community. Our district is pretty diverse. Our district includes PCC in the Caltech areas, South Lake, and up toward Bungalow Heaven. If you could design a perfect day in Pasadena from breakfast to late night, what would you do, where would you go, and what would you eat and drink? Well, I'm going to start my day at Lucky Boy Sausage Breakfast Burrito. From there, well, actually, before I even get to Lucky Boy, I'm probably going to go to the Rose Bowl and walk first, then go to Lucky Boy. Probably going to go to Arlington Garden. Enjoy some outdoor time and some green space. I like to stroll through Trader Joe's. Any Trader Joe's works for me. I tend to default to the one on Rosemead. Just it's easier to park. They seem to have more stuff sometimes. But a Trader Joe's trip makes me happy all the time. For lunch, since I'm at Trader Joe's, I may pop over to Stonefire. I don't know what they put in their Caesar salad, but it is the best Caesar dressing I have ever had. I'm trying to dissect the recipe, but I haven't quite gotten there yet. What else do I like to do? Where do I like to go? I love architecture. So being able to just take in the unique architecture of our neighborhoods, of our landmarks. City Hall is still a place that excites me every time I go. You take for granted that our City Hall is an amazing place. When you go to other cities and you're like, oh, that's your City Hall? Okay. You don't know because you grew up with our city hall being what it is. And then as we wind to the afternoon, evening, I do enjoy happy hour. So, you know, maybe a rooftop at Granville, maybe a little dip over to plate 38. I enjoy Foothill as well. So, you know, lots of options there. And then if we're going to have dinner, if you can get a table at Sugarfish, you're lucky, but it is quite an experience. I eat all kinds of food. I've got very few things that are on my not eat list. So open to the things. I do enjoy Old Town. I don't enjoy the parking, but I will do it for ramen. How can people support you or get involved in your campaign? You can visit my website at patrice the number four pasadena.com. You can learn more about sort of me, my background, what my policy priorities are, how to volunteer. We're knocking on doors. We're walking three days a week typically walking on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Saturdays. So feel free to come out and join us. Talking to voters is really where the magic happens. I think that once people meet a candidate in real life and they realize that we're not just sort of abstract folks, that we are their neighbors, that we're people like them, we care about the same things, we want the same things for our communities, 
it makes it easier for people to sort of understand and digest why it is you do that. Personally, for me, I never, ever, ever thought that I would ever give to like a candidate or a campaign. I'm like, who does that? Like, why do people, who could give their money to people like that? But I met a candidate in real life and I was inspired by why she wanted to serve, inspired by her vision for her leadership and found myself like writing a check to her. So I think that the more I'm able to talk to voters, I really enjoy being able to have those conversations, to hear what's important to people and how I can help. The person that you're potentially replacing is Pomeroy. Is that right? Yes. And I think I voted for her because she knocked on my door. I didn't know who her opponent was. And she went around to our house and I talked to her for a couple minutes. And even if I might not have supported everything she believed in or did, she made the effort. And I think that speaks volumes for a candidate to do that, to knock on doors, especially during COVID. I think it's incredibly challenging. Well, thank you for being such a great part of Pasadena, for being an advocate and leader in education, and for coming on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. My many thanks to Patrice for coming on the show. Patrice's vision for PUSD is for it to be a premier school district. With Pasadena's resources and capabilities, not only should PUSD be a premier district, but we have the responsibility to our children that it be one. An investment in PUSD is an investment in the future of Pasadena. With Patrice's extensive experience in education and working with the LAUSD board, I believe that she can be a positive force in leading the district forward. To learn more about Patrice and her campaign, please visit patricemarshallmckenzie.com and patrice4pasadena.com. After the success of the last two episodes where I've recorded conversations live, I was hoping to do the same with Patrice. However, due to a cold that the new school year brought into my household, Patrice and I unfortunately couldn't record in person. However, I hope to be out and about again when I'm fully recovered, or at least until I pick something else up. There are many people that keep this show going. First, I wanted to thank my Patreon sponsors, Jess and Albert. I really appreciate your continued support. Second, thank you to my family for all their love to keep this project alive. And finally, to all that listen, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show or supporting it through direct sponsorship or Patreon. I would love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at thecrowncitypodcast.com and follow me on Instagram. Until next time, please remember to stay well, get to class on time, and as always, see you around town. Having three or four, <laughs> I should rephrase that. Having four little kids.